Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Rullar, as it's called, my pod with uh, Louise Kugelberg, that's right, yeah. and Julia Schnabel. I'm so honored to have you here in my pod. Um, Thank you. It's Tack. Tack. Tack, Mika. I'm thinking Van, van Gogh, we say Van Gogh, or Van Gogh, Van Gogh, yeah. Van Gogh. It's <laughs> van Gogh. He's, he's van Gogh. mentioned yeah. in Basquiat in the beginning. Yeah, Van Gogh boat. He's been with you all your life, or yeah, just about as long as Picasso, probably. One of those kinds of figures that even people that don't know anything about art have something related to Van Gogh on their refrigerator or somewhere. But uh, uh, yeah, I've been looking at his work for for uh, some time, but. I, I, you know, for the past, what, day and a half, I've been talking about Winston Churchill. Okay. Because he wrote a book called The Painting as Pastime. Very little book, but it's really informative. And I just wanted to say that, yes, I looked at Van Gogh's work when I was younger. But Winston Churchill would say, it's better to look at or read a book when you're older. And you have a better perspective because the first time you read the book is going to be the biggest impression you're going to get. And even if you read the book when you're younger, it will color your experience of it when you read it later. Mm -hmm. So whether I saw Van Gogh's work a long time ago or yesterday, the whole point of painting really is paintings bring you into their present the moment you stand in front of them. And I would say that each time you see the thing, you have a different experience. And that probably is why it's compelling to make a movie about somebody that stops time in that way 
And then his work actually continues to breathe and breathe on you and breathe through you. Uh, so. He said, uh, how, if it, the, the work in progress now, uh, process now, uh, would you, how, how has that been? Uh, how, how did you, Louis, came into this project? Um, well, it all happened very organic. Um, Julian was at Jean-Claude's house in Paris uh, writing the script about Van Gogh. And um, I was coming there with him, just listening to their conversations in the beginning. And um, I guess at one point, uh, they, they wrote different scenes at looking at different paintings. And uh, when they were going to put this into a narrative, I think they saw two different movies. And I understand the vision that Julian had. Um, so I started to put the scenes together. And um, that was sort of the starting point of the collaboration for the script. Yeah. Because you also, in the, in the editing process, you have a big part there. Yes, exactly. So what happened was that we, we wrote the script together. And then when he went down to Arles, I came with him. And I was there every day on set. And we did more or less everything together. And um, when we were finishing shooting in December, we were supposed to wait for Juliette Belfling, who edited uh, uh, The Diving Bell and the Butterfly right. and Miral with Julian. Um, but she was working on another movie, um, and it was going to be finished in April. So we had a couple of months and we couldn't really wait. So I said to Julian, why don't I put the Avid, uh, the editing program yeah. on my laptop? And I had a guy in New York who taught me the basics and we started to put scenes together and look at the material. And when we were ready to go to Paris to meet Juliet. We had a full movie. <laughs> it was. Yeah. <laughs> By February 24th, where we were supposed to meet with the assistant editor because Juliet wasn't going to be ready till April, we started to we were so far gone by the time we got back there that when Juliet got involved, she started to take out everything that characterized it as itself. And even though she's a great editor, we really didn't need her. And so uh, we just kept going. And, um, and, you know, Tarkovsky, when asked, what are your influences? He'd say, I had none because I tried to make the movies specific to me. And um, obviously you're influenced by everything around you, but at the same time, you're influenced by something that you know nothing about. And I think what happened was from the time that Louise got involved in trying to sort of uh, translate almost for from me to Jean-Claude by listing things and organizing things, uh, it seemed to be some kind of a runaway train to where we ended up in Arles and we had to discover locations and all sorts of things. And, and so the writing became a record of physical activity, of walking through the woods with Willem, finding locations, uh, discovering uh, locations that were not scripted until we were inventing other things that became the movie. 
And, um, because in the script they just say that he's walking in nature, mm. so we didn't really know what that was going to happen until we got to Ireland, saw the locations and the landscape. And, and well, one thing that we knew for sure was that he was going to look at his feet while he was walking, and we knew that somehow at some moment he was going to have to walk through a wheat field, and there was no <laughs> wheat in Arl when we arrived there, so we sent Benoit Delhomme to Scotland, where there were wheat fields still, and asked him to film his feet walking in, in, in uh, Van Gogh's clothes. So he's wearing Van Gogh's pants and shoes, walking through wheat fields in Scotland. And then out of, say, six hours of looking at his feet, walking through uh, yes. terrain, we had a couple a moments. We had a minute. That was perfect. But I think what Benoit learned in that process was that you need to Film as you're seeing, not like you're filming. Just make it feel like you're looking rather than filming something. And once you do that, there was a kind of fluidi fluidity that I think he found that was absolutely perfect for the movie. And he also invented, he used the red camera and he invented, um, um, what do you call it? Um, Some kind of holding device where yes. he could operate. So he can hold it both in his hand and he could run with it and he can film up okay. and down and be very, very yeah. flexible. Yeah, this is the thing. Nice to say that, Louise, because in this film has these beautiful views and also very close up like uh, one of these Danish guys, you know. That is, I can't remember a scene like that in one of your earlier films that really close up. Well, I guess in the diving bell and the butterfly, there's uh, uh, you okay. see uh, Jean Doe in bed, and even see his eye, okay, yeah, yeah. which is uh, kind of that's true. Uh, but I think that image of his eye also, I I had seen "Come and See" by Emil Klomov, where this cow is shot in the middle of this war, and the cow's dying in, in this field, and you just see the cow's eye, and I was very. You ever seen that movie? You should see it by Emil Klomov. Come and see. It's about a kid in Russia, yeah, yeah. and the Nazis are driving through there, and they burn these people in a, yeah, in a it's, church. It's, it's home in the archive. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's Swedish. It's Gorsia. Yeah, Gorsia. Come, yeah, come yeah, and see. Yeah, yeah, go and yeah, see. That's exactly. true. That's true. Well, anyway, but it's I, I really uh, took a, saw that this was a lot of camera that was really in action here. And you have a mix of this beautiful view, and then suddenly there's yeah, it's, it's a, the difference between landscape and portraiture. Yeah, big heads for the portraits and horizontal uh, camera movement for the landscapes, and but not only that, the kind of agitation that exists in the character uh, and the way you feel him experiencing things is echoed in the camera work, but not only in that, but in the editing that Louise did with me, uh, I think that you really feel the kind of staccato uh, rhythm of images, and then they're fragmented in some way. And for example, when he's painting the, the, um, the shoes in that room before he starts to yeah. paint, following him around the room, dropping his stuff, picking something up, going to the cupboard, looking at something, taking his shoes off, and then turning that crummy room into something amazing. Would you say that it seems that he was an enigma in a way? 
Vincent van Gogh. I mean, and how was it with his? If you should, I don't know if it's a spoiler to say that his death was very mysterious. Or is yeah, well, nobody was there, so they don't know what happened. People have been trying to piece together uh, different things, but from the police report and from the transcript by the police, which is pretty close to what's in the movie, he was asked, did you shoot yourself? And he said, I don't know. And he said, don't blame anybody else. Now, why would somebody say that if there was no one else to blame? That being said, who knows who messed with the police report or what the facts are. I mean, I keep referring to Rashomon where there's one event and there are five different versions of that event. So what do we know? Not more than the next guy or girl, but we follow our nose, lean towards the divine light, trust our intuition. And um, I think some of the research that was done in the book, The Life by, um, what are their names? Smith and um, there were two guys, one died died recently. But um, I think they did a lot of research. And another thing that happened was uh, the description of Van Gogh walking home from Chaponval, which is the opposite direction from the wheat field. And, you know, people were using Irving Stone's version of Lust for Life as the Bible. Well, he didn't shoot himself in the head right after he made the crows painting. That's what's in Vincent Minnelli's movie. Now, what happens is people watch a movie and they think that's real. Yeah. So everything that's in our movie is real. Everything that's not in our movie never happened. I mean, obviously, there's no personal language. There's just a personal selection of language. So we chose to say that he came home this way. We might be wrong, but it's a good story. And if what happened to his paintings... And what happens to his paint and his easel and all of his stuff? If you're going to kill yourself, how do you bury your stuff and then kill yourself? I mean, where did everything go? So, and why walk home two miles with a bullet in your stomach? Why not just shoot yourself in the head? Yeah. So, uh, and also it's, um, it's in the, um, what do you call it? In the police report that he said that don't blame anyone. Yeah. And what we are seeing in the movie is exactly what the report was saying, that he sort of say, I, I never had a gun and don't blame anyone. So. Yeah. And there's a record of uh, this guy, Rene Secretan, running around in a Buffalo Bill jacket and yeah. also the fact that Ravo's gun disappeared and he didn't have it. So who knows? But it was... Uh, um, Again, also the thing about the um, the ledger. the ledger. I mean, um, the Van Gogh Museum has not authenticated the ledger, but the person that wrote the text for the book was Ronald Pickvance, who authenticated many Van Goghs and also curated the show that was at the Met years ago about Van Gogh and all. Now he's dead. He was 84. Why would he need to sensationalize his, in his, uh, uh, what's the word when you discover something? His uh, discovery. I mean, he had no use for that. Uh, also, this woman, Boga Mila Welsh, who um, 
probably will go to her grave trying to prove that that thing is real. Mm. That being said, it was very, very helpful to us to know her and to go through that because it helped us to catalog all the paintings and know which paintings would have been in the cafeteria, which paintings would have been in uh, Teo's house. And in doing that, we could make poetic license decisions about, okay, well, we're going to paint the painting of the roots in 1888 instead of 1889 because we want to invent this situation where the kids disturb him, he scares the kids, they throw a rock at him, he grabs the kid, kid's father beats him up, he ends up in the hospital. Why is he in the hospital? So his brother can come and save him, write a letter to Gauguin to get Gauguin to come to Oral. Yeah. So. Also, the story about the letter fits perfectly in the movie. I mean, that he actually made these drawings and she never find them and we find them in 2016. It's yeah. kind of It's wonderful it, it, how everything gets yeah, together. Yeah, and if you yeah. sit in the movie theater with other people like we did yesterday, every time people read that, you always hear people go, oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's fantastic to get something like that. But... How come? Is it this part of it uh, that he did? Is it true that he didn't sell anything, any of his paintings during his lifetime? Is it so? He uh, he traded works with other artists. So I'd say that the works that he traded had value. Um, certainly, the letter in the movie that Gauguin writes to him that he reads in the hospital—that's a real letter. And. Um, Also, the letter at the end of the movie in yellow, when Van Gogh, where Gauguin writes about him writing "Je suis le uh, Saint Esprit, Saint Esprit," you know, uh, uh, I'm the I'm the Holy Spirit, and I'm sound of spirit. That's something that Gauguin wrote four years after he died. So I think that we take things that we can use and make them feel real. And then obviously there's a certain, there was a question a guy asked last night after seeing the movie saying, what is reality? Which I thought was a pretty good response to the movie. What is reality? What is, it's not what's real that's in the movie or not, is what is reality? When you make a work of art and you inhabit that work of art, what what happens to you? Let's talk about that for a minute. I mean, you were talking about Lou Reed before. You talk about a record. You hear music. You inhabit, let's talk about Berlin. You inhabit the story. You live the story. You live the story thinking about Caroline and what happened, what she did with the Black Air Force sergeant and all of that stuff. Mm. Why do you engage in that? What happens to you? And what? when does that stop being something that you're listening to and something that's a part of you, that you carry around with you, that is you, ultimately? So when somebody talks to you and they and you hear something that refers to that, it speaks to something that's been living inside of you. And so what's the use of making something? Why do people make anything? And ultimately, I think that's what our movie is about, making something or he made something that was able to transgress death. He was able to make something that speaks to us still. When he says, I am my paintings, he wasn't kidding. You walked up to one of those paintings And he's right there. And you carry that with you just the way you carry Lou's record with you. Now, I knew Lou, you didn't know him. I mean, but he 
Uh, but when I hear his music, wherever we are, there's something that my life is different at that moment while that's going through me. So I think we're talking about what goes through you and into you. What is it about being? In fact, Oliver Stone wrote me a letter about Willem's performance. And he said, he pa- Van Gogh passed through you into him. And so we pass through each other, through working with each other, talking to each other. What are we trying to do? And so sometimes when we talk about these facts or is this true or is that true? Well, uh, what touches you is true. And what you need to, I mean, everything's a part of something else also. So say we've got the part of the movie where those kids do that or where we use the ledger. But in terms of the story, all of a sudden you feel something for the lady that gave him the book earlier in the movie. And that describes that. And uh, you start to, um, you can't separate one part from the other part. And for example, most art is, if there's uh, anything, if there's a, the, the, it's as strong as the weakest link in the chain. Whether it's a painting, if there's a crummy part of the painting, your painting's crummy. Everything's got to be perfect. And it has to be a seamless fiction. So uh, it's funny because I wrote a script about um, the perfume, the book, The Perfume, that was never used. But my attitude was that I wanted people to suspend all their moral judgments because the guy does such horrible things because all they really should be interested in does the perfume work? And that's really what, the, and they go, wow, these, because the, the audience then can sit there and think, yeah, these people really don't know how good that perfume is. And that's what you want to see. That's the magic of uh, the power of suggestion. I think, you know, um, is there a myth about the suffering artist? Or so? I mean, like in Vincent van Gogh, everybody, you feel way pity for him and he's cut off his ear. All these things is like a thing you read about in Did today. Did you see the movie, sir? I haven't seen it. Unfortunately, not yet. I think he looked pretty damn happy when he was out in that field. When he's sitting up and he poured that dirt on his face and he yeah. sat up smiling. That's how you feel when you are doing something that you want to do. So you asked me, did he sell a painting? When people say he didn't sell a painting in his life, that's really the projection, a bourgeois projection about society, what is success or not. What was success was a successful painting. Um, And maybe it's hard to tell, even if you like your own paintings, they might not be very good. But maybe you're dissatisfied with your painting, but the painting is really good. So it's almost as if it didn't matter what he thought. But one thing is important is that he, like he says to Dr. Gaget, when I paint, I stop thinking and I become a part of everything that's inside and outside of me. And I think at that moment in the film, he also has resigned himself to the fact where he said, you know, I used to think that artists were supposed to teach people how to look at the world, but I don't believe that anymore. Now I just think about my relationship with eternity. And I think when people are younger, they're trying to convince people of something else. They want agreement from others. After a while, you realize that it's the practice that you're interested in. That's what's engaging. That's when you, uh, death is sort of pushed aside for a while because 
there's something that's infinite and fulfilling in the practice of doing that thing. So what was your question? Well, the question is about this. I feel, I don't know. I'm not an artist. I am. Okay. I have painted, but, but I mean, um, it's a kind of a myth about the suffering artist, whether it's a musician or is a, you know. Well, I think that the cliche, I don't think our movie is a cliche. No, I, absolutely and, not. And, I don't mean that. And I think our reason for doing it was also to kind of dismiss and dispel a lot of that stuff. But I think also mm -hmm. we have scenes, for instance, when um, the kid is throwing the stone. Yeah, yeah. And he runs after and grabs the kid. And then the father's kid come out and, and you know, see him having his hand on. The kid's father. The kid's father. Exactly. See Van Gogh having um, his little boy in his hands. I mean, who wouldn't, you know, explode and get really yeah, angry? Yeah. And I think he was really misunderstood. I mean, uh, the people in our actually signed a petition against him. When he went to San Remy, they didn't want him to come back Pretty there. Good. Okay. And yeah. he, he kind of, you know, he was different, and people saw him different, and they were bullying him. And I mean, then you also become that person or that creature that people um, project on. Project on. Yeah, I, I like that in the film that he seems. I mean, he just takes up his canvas and he starts painting, and he just loves it when he has his brush in his hand, isn't it? So that. Yeah. Is it so for you as well when you're doing your big fantastic works that you're as when happy? When I'm painting, I, I usually feel pretty good. I get disturbed if it's turning out the wrong way, but I feel pretty good when I'm doing it. Yeah. Um, but for example, in that movie um, uh, Beale Street, did you see yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. The black guy, well, they're all black, but the black guy and his young wife go into the grocery store. Yeah. He steps out and that cop sees him. Yeah. He doesn't understand the, the, the gravity of what's really happening. He thinks he's free. James Baldwin is saying, well, black people are not free in the United States. Here's a normal guy standing out there. He doesn't understand this is going to ruin his life just by speaking back to this guy, just by being himself. It's no different than Vincent just being the way he is in Arles and not understanding that they're people, in their case, they're, they're not really malicious. They are just ignorant, ignorant yeah. and unknowing. And so what we tried to do also was to show that people aren't malevolent or people aren't evil. It's just that they're uninformed and they don't know any better. And it's their ignorance that uh, creates this difficulty. And uh, so it makes the audience, when they notice these things, sympathize for him because I would say, yeah, like she was saying, anybody would have grabbed somebody who was grabbing their son, I mean, in front of their house. I mean, they don't say, well, why are you doing that? They just say, you know, they, and so, um, but obviously also we invented that scene so we could get him in the hospital. Um, so the idea of the suffering artist, well, isn't Buddhism suffering? I mean, human, basically life is suffering. That's what Buddhism is about. But I think also if you make something, you try not to compromise. And in not compromising, you have to suffer other things sometimes if you're really fighting for what you want to do. Yeah. In fact, in our movie, there were people that 
wanted us not to have these black yeah. parts of our movie. There were people that thought that uh, he was walking around in the woods too long. There are people that, uh, I mean, investors, people that uh, feel like they have something to say. And the thing that, the only thing that I have is final cut. So there's no democracy. It is the way I see it or it doesn't exist. That's great. You have Final Cut. I've had it in all my movies. I never made a nickel making movies, but I make the movies that I want to make. Yeah. So there were times where Louise and I had to just swallow the kind of um, inability of the people that were supposed to be appreciating what we were doing. I mean, there was one person said, you're making a, a movie for three people. And we, is this, this, this is one of my questions. Should we take that is on this paper? Should we take that now? <laughs> is there a balance you have to walk between doing your art as you want it or together or right. for yourself and a kind of, if I do like this quote, right. commercial value for a film? How do you look upon that? How do you do? No, no, because we don't do it. I mean, somebody asked me in a, in an interview on stage, if you were going to make this movie for a wider audience, what, how would you change it? And I said, I wouldn't change a fucking frame. So <laughs> um, it's exactly the way we wanted it to be. Yeah. And believe me, there were people kicking and screaming yeah. while we were doing this. And we had to look at each other and, and just sort of be a bit frustrated those days or whatever, but uh, never. And if somebody had a good idea, we would listen. Um, and I mean, but you have to, I, I guess in the CBJ book I wrote, listen to everybody and then don't take their advice. Yeah. But on occasion, for example, John Killick would have a really good idea. Yeah. It wasn't our idea, but I don't need to own every idea. If she's got a better idea than I do, thank you, I say. Mm -hmm. I don't think I need to protect my authority or my autonomy by having everything go my way, even if it's wrong. So uh, I think that there's a lot of freedom on a set when I'm the director where people can actually contribute something, say what they think. If I don't agree, fine. But if they've got a better idea than I do, fantastic. Okay. Yeah. Uh, this is your fourth film about artists, I would say. This is the fourth one? Uh, Basquiat, Before Night Falls, Berlin, Berlin and Vincent. Okay. Is that okay? Yeah, yeah. we're not going to call Jean Domo, Jean Dominique Bobby an artist. He was not. An no, artist. but uh, no, but uh, but he became an artist. No, yeah, no, he became an artist through his sickness. But yes, yeah. you're right. One, two, three, four. Four. Yeah. Uh, I just wonder if there's anything that there that I mean, you knew a couple of them as well, of course, well, Lou and 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 uh, I mean, the thing is, I, as well. Or? I'm an artist. I'm not a stockbroker. I'm not a basketball player. I mean, maybe if I was, I could make a good movie about basketball, but I don't know anything about that. No. I know something about these topics. Yeah. So if we go back to Basquiat, for example, yes. uh, you, you knew him and yeah. met him? and I knew him. And this is your first film. Uh, and it, it made Jeffrey Wright a star, I would like to say. He was fantastic in that film, wasn't he? Yeah, he was. <laughs> or is it something that is... Because I, I, I met him here in Stockholm when he yeah. came for this film, and it was great to see. But what can you say? Did you have fun with him? He was great. Okay, yeah, he was. Um, 
And that, that film, when I just read about Julian Schnabel and Warhol and everything, you know, so how come that you went from, not went from, but you took a break from your other work as well? Because he and died. Doing a film? He died. And when he died, there was a guy that wanted to make a movie about him, and I thought I would help him because I was still alive, and he kind of went through a similar uh, um, decathlon gauntlet, whatever it was called. Um, and I was still alive, and he wasn't. And I thought I'd help this guy make the movie, but he didn't know anything about the topic. So at a certain moment, just to be true to Jean-Michel, I needed to take it and do it myself. Okay. I never expected to do that, but I just did it. So that that has not been a dream of yours since you were younger to be a film director? Was it an, a painter, an artist you wanted to be? or I was always a painter, ever since I was little. I never was anything else. And you were always a movie fan. But I was always a movie fan. Yeah. I mean, I saw The Ten Commandments when I was really little and um, saw Spartacus <laughs> a million times. And uh, also when I was about 13, I think I saw... Um, Repulsion by Roman Polanski, yeah. which had a huge effect on me. Because um, I didn't know, I mean, there was no history for that kind of filmmaking in Brooklyn, New York uh, in that time. I mean, it was an accident that I walked into the movie theater and I saw this black and white movie where there's a guy sticking his hands out of the wall and grabbing yeah. this woman by the kids and you know, this incredible, beautiful girl there with this dead rabbit sitting on a plate <laughs> and all this crazy shit happening. You know, I thought, wow, now that's a movie. <laughs> um, but I didn't think I was going to be a movie director because I just um, spent my time painting. But I also, when I didn't have any money, I used to go to the Elgin Theater because you could pay $3 to get in to see the movie and spend the day in there because it was cold outside and watch a bunch of Fassbender films or Werner Herzog films. And, um, and then... Um, no Bergman? Oh, yes. Um, <laughs> absolutely. You have to mention him. No, the no, no, in the room. <laughs> no, because, of course we have to mention him because uh, I think if there's any movie that this film is like at all, even though it's radically different, it would be Persona. I mean, particularly when he's talking about what happens to him in the dark and you just hear him speaking and you have to imagine this stuff yourself in the same way that you'd imagine what happened to B.B. Anderson on the beach. So, um, so it's very interesting. And also, like Winston Churchill says, it's very interesting to see these movies at different times because right. my impression of, say, Wild Strawberries was radically different when I saw it as a teenager uh, in college and a few years ago where I was re-watching it. And then when you know something about surrealistic film or you think about Louis Bunuel or whatever, you really look at that part of the movie. The carriage. Yeah, very, very different. Fantastic, yeah. So... Um, Is, that was your film school to go and, and see movies and just... As well as it was my uh, school of uh, hard knocks sitting around at Max's <laughs> Kansas City at one o'clock at night talking to artists or people that were... Um, had you ever been to Max's? Kansas no, City? unfortunately not, not CBGB's either. So, But I understand that was a part of your... Yeah. Yeah, of course. Um, 
And that had a huge effect on me. I mean, I met Willem de Kooning there. I met all sorts of artists that are dead now. I mean, Robert Smithson. And all those musicians at that time, television, for example, Tom Verlaine and all those guys. Yeah, I used, um, I wanted to use uh, Marquis Moon in Basquiat, but Tom Verlaine didn't want to let me use it. I don't know why. Uh But uh, I thought, yeah, Richard Lloyd was great. Uh, And uh, so I knew, um, uh, what's his name? Um, who was in the psychedelic furs? Richard uh, uh, Butler. Richard, Richard Butler is yeah. a friend of mine. He's a painter also. Oh, he is. Okay. But I haven't seen him for years, so I used uh, um, what, what what music did I use? I used uh, something before uh, Pretty in Pink or from from psychedelic furs. I yeah. used I used a song Nerdy in, song. in uh, when he's riding uh, on the bicycle. Okay, because I heard you have public image in the film as well. Yeah. What song? It doesn't matter. Okay, I have to. I, I want to watch it. I'm going to see this with my my kids once again now. I, I felt that yeah. I have to see it again because. Yeah, Benicia was amazing in that. Movie. Yeah, yeah, it's a fantastic film. But so, was it a kind of um, work for? Were you very sad, of course, when he died? But you knew that he was living this life. Basquiat, that, that's well, he had a great, um, he took a lot of drugs and he had a very high resistance, but he got off heroin for a while and he went to Hawaii and when he came back, I guess he couldn't take a normal dose of what he took before and, and he died in the summer, August, uh, August 12th, 1988. Mm-hmm. But, um, and then, oh, you know, I knew a lot of people because they were interested in painting, Chris Walken, Gary Oldman. Uh, Dennis Hopper, all, David Bowie, all were interested in painting. It's funny how many people wish they were painters. <laughs> uh, and uh, it's always the green is always uh, the grass is always greener on the other Why side. Why did you do that interview with David Bowie? Oh, uh, Charlie Rose. And you're talking about painting. Have you seen that? No, Charlie Rose. Yeah. You, you can watch David Bowie and me on Charlie Rose because we disagree about everything. <laughs> okay. <laughs> But isn't it so, uh, Julian, that um, actors want to be singers and singers want to be actors? It's something you usually say as a kind of thing. Um, well, I don't know, but... Yeah, I mean, that happens a lot. Uh, uh, that happens a lot. Uh, being a singer is a pretty cool thing because, you know, you can... I mean, if you look at Mick Jagger, uh, he's so damn excited when he's performing in front of people. He gets so much energy out of it. It's like a lifeline. So when I'm painting, I feel like that. I mean, I have a I have a softness for Keith Richards. I prefer him to Mick Jagger. Not that you have to pick, but I like the way Keith sings. Like um, "This Place Is Empty Without You" is a really beautiful song. Um, there's a great record called "Unknown Pleasures" that he made when he thought he was going to go to jail in uh, Canada. I sang a couple of those songs. Uh, Apartment number nine. Your album. In my album. Yeah. Yeah. You, you really? It's, I felt that you really don't want, didn't want to talk about your album. Is it so? Or oh, uh, I'll tell you something. It was better when I sang it over the telephone to somebody. It got overproduced. Bill Laswell. I wasn't. De- I was too democratic. 
you have mm -hmm. a fantastic the, the musicians on your album, Scopolitis and uh, in fact, I have a version of me singing apartment number nine with Ornette Coleman playing, but I didn't use it because it sounded like there were too many people in the room. <laughs> but Ornette said to me, you think you could sing that again without the melody? I thought, wow, let me get my mind around that. <laughs> I mean, that's a gift. That sort of, it's like getting a telephone call from Ronald Brando, having Ornette Coleman tell you. Ornette Coleman tell you to sing it without that, that's fantastic. But it just became one album. Well, it's funny, I was I'm walking down the street the other day, a couple of years I have ago, to find and a guy it. said to me, I love your album. I said, what album? I totally erased it from my head. People like it. Uh, what's her name? Um, uh, Kurt Cobain's wife. Courtney Love. Courtney Love loves my record. There's some people that love it and just you know bring it back to me and... Um, it's okay. It was a little too, my heart was on my sleeve a little too much there. Lou Reed said to me, it sounded like you never heard a rock and roll record in your life. But you have, I mean, you, as you said, you've been hanging out at Max's Kansas City. And I mean, we were great friends, but I mean, I kind of maybe sound more like Elvis Presley than, uh, but Lou was very, he may have been extremely judgmental about the record, but I think he really trusted my point of view about music. So I think he was just being himself. And it was funny that he said that. But Laurie Anderson is my great friend. <coughs> well, Laurie and Lou did music for Before Nightfalls. And then there was a documentary called um, Havana. And I saw Ronaldo Arena sitting in this crummy hotel room on South Beach. Kind of like the interview that that Javier does in the movie. And he said, you know, I've got all the qualities of never being published. I'm homosexual, I'm anti-castrista. And uh, I thought, God, this guy's so funny. And he also is so unassuming. What an amazing character. And I went to Cuba and the guy who was the head of the film festival there, who was New Castro, and he's probably dead now. Um, he uh, said, why don't you make a movie about Alejo Carpentier? Why do you want to make a movie about Ronaldo Arenas? Well, I never said that I was not going to do it, so I never kind of covered up what my uh, intention was. And uh, and then I made the movie. It was the most watched black market film in Cuba. Uh, and Javier Bardem also didn't know that he wanted to do this because I'm an American person. And and uh, his, father, his uncle was a communist, mother communist, and his uncle made a lot of films. And I said, listen, so I, he didn't know if he wanted to do that, if it would be a conflict of interest. And I said, you go to Havana and you get with the people for a while. And if you don't want to do the movie after you do that, it's fine with me. So I sent him to Havana and he saw what was going on there and he came back and we made the movie. And uh, actually, I know it's maybe it's a drag. It's more interesting to talk than than to for somebody to read. But 
I was Hector Barbenko. You know the film Pichot? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that, I Nick Cave's favorite. He moved to South America because of uh, that film, didn't he? Nick Cave. Oh, he was so exactly. engaged in, in the. So Hector Barbenko was also a great friend of mine. We became really great friends. And in fact, he is in Before Night Falls. He plays Virgilio Pinera. And um, just give you. Something. Yeah, I, I can. I, I, I will promise you something, Julian. You read it later. No, no, but, no. I wanted to do it, but I just want to tell you that I'm, we're going to have a, a, a Julian Schnabel festival this Easter when we are on the countryside. I'm going to see that they see all your films. Okay, this I, is going to find this interesting because this is amazing. <laughs> yeah, uh, this guy made. There were two really great movies made in the 1980s. One of them was Raging Bull. The other one was Pichot by Hector Babenko. Pichot about a kid who was in prison and he uh, actually was killed later by the police because he became very famous and he was involved in a bank robbery and they shot him. Okay, Hector wrote this in 2000. I'm 50 years old and while I consider myself a citizen of the world, my heart and education belong below the equator. From this perspective and as a professional filmmaker, I've seen South American cinema struggle to find a way of telling stories that combine the poetic elements of our culture with our social and political background. For three and a half decades, we've lived with the phenomena of communism, in certain years with enthusiasm and in other years with disillusionment. More recently, we've seen the disintegration of the situation in Cuba, but we have never been able to create a film that represents our reality as fully as Julian Schnabel has in Before Night Falls. I believe Before Night Falls is an emblematic portrait of the world below the equator. It's a strong, poetic, and imaginative piece of work, a beautiful parable that begins in a place of extreme poverty and ends in a place of extreme wealth. It has far more than one reading, perhaps most important. Before Night Falls is a portrait of the artist as a free man. It's very difficult to make movies about artists. I believe Julian has succeeded because he always considers the humanity of the character more than the plot of the story. He also has an extraordinary poetic vision in terms of how he sees the background. Now he inserts the character into the landscape. Interesting to think about this movie now. Mr. Schnabel has invented his own cinematic vocabulary with this movie. Before Night Falls epitomizes freedom of expression, both in its form and its content. What is so interesting to me is that a Jew who lives in New York, a man who is almost a paradigm of the successful artist and not a guy who grew up in Colombia or Brazil or Havana, arrives and tells us a story that we were never able to tell. Julian Schnabel has created the best Latin American movie ever made about the subject of freedom. I mean, how could I not love this guy? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, and we were in love. I mean, he was my great friend. Uh, he was not a very good actor because he really didn't do so good. He realized how tough it is when we made Before Night Falls. But what a great friend. And Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And he was... There's a documentary that somebody made about me called... Uh, by Papi Corsicato, Julian Schnabel, a private portrait. You could probably find it on the internet. But Hector's in it. And I was at his house and he's complaining because his maid thinks I made the best risotto ever. And he was very jealous. <laughs> but he's really, he was really something. Yeah. But I must say, and I'm not just saying this to, you know, but, right. but you have such a high standard of all your films. Uh, very personal. You see, when this is a Julia Schnabel movie, always, and I like love the topics, of course, that you, and of course, the Lurid Berlin is very strong. Since I was, as you said, when I heard it the first time, I was think too young, didn't have that intellect to understand, until later when I was mm-hmm. older and when I had mm-hmm. some sorrows myself, not of that caliber, yeah. but but things that happens to you that you. You have the baggage with you in your cinema when you see a film and right. suddenly it just hits you hard. But he also made that stuff up. He never went to Berlin. That all happened in New York City. So he invented Berlin for Why all of us. Because it was decadent. Right. Oh, probably, I think. Don't you think so? Yeah. I, probably. But that's, if we go to... Or we, maybe we should talk about... the. Is that the most commercially successful film, The, the Diving Bell and the... But that is the one that, and it won your prizes as well, of course. But you always have. Is that important to have prizes for for films for your? I never thought in a million years that I would ever win best director at Cannes. I mean, what painter thinks that that's going to happen? <laughs> so when it was happening, I thought, wow, this is pretty cool, and it was a lot of fun. Uh, it was distributed very poorly. Particularly, not in the United States, but I mean, the worst distribution we've ever had was on this movie in the United States now, even though Willem won Best Actor. Because CBS didn't know what to do and they did a shitty job. And I have no problem saying that on the air. No, no, you, you have problems getting your art out, so to speak, your films out. Not really. Or, I mean, it just seemed I'm, like we gave it to the wrong people. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but, but I think what's happened also, I mean, as you're not in the movie business, you don't know. I mean, you let someone else take care of it. Yeah. I didn't, I don't you care. You present your art <laughs> and then someone should take yeah, care of it. Yeah. But for example, and people don't know what to do with it. Yes, so exactly. for example, Jerome Sedou, even though I won Best Director in Cannes, they put the movie out before the reviews came out. Now so we're talking about the Diamond, the Diamond Bell. Bell. Yeah. In, the United, in, in, in France. And I think a lot of people were scared to see a movie about a crippled guy. If they knew the story, oh God, we're going to go in there and be, it's going to be very depressing. We're going to be locked in. 
And uh, I think people were surprised. So I think what happens is the movies are probably not designed for a quick digestion. You're not necessarily going to win an award, or if you get one, it's a miracle. But for some reason, okay, yes, I won Best Director. Then I won Best Director at the Golden Globes that year and Best Film in Foreign Language. But the Golden Globes were canceled because there was a writer's strike. So I got the award at LaGuardia Airport on the monitor when I was picking up my luggage. But you see. Yeah. And so another thing is that Jerome Sedou did not submit our film as French admission for the Oscars, which we would have probably won Best Foreign Film, but nobody knew what to do with it. So they thought, because I won Best Film in a Foreign Language at the Golden Globes, that it was going to be nominated for Foreign Film, which it wasn't. So I was nominated for Best Director, Best Cinematography, Best Editing, and Best Screenplay, but not Best Picture. And basically, No Country for Old Men won that year. And... Um, And then uh, Daniel Day-Lewis won Best Actor for There Will Be Blood. He was great in that. That's Paul a really Paul great Tom, movie, yeah. too. I Paul Thomas Asher. Yeah. He's, he's, he's also one of my favorites. <laughs> and Coen Brothers, of course, yeah. So, uh, but do I think that The Diving Bell and the Butterfly was better than uh, both of those movies? Yes, I do. I mean, as time goes by, better. It's They're all different versions. Those guys are great. You know, I loved... There will be blood, um, and it's funny because Javier sent me said, "You know, the Cone Brothers want me to play this crazy guy in this movie." I said, "Do it," but this I said, "Just do it." They're the Cone Brothers. You're going to have a good time. It's going to yeah. be a good thing. Um, and when I saw it, I laughed my sides off seeing him strangle that guy on the floor. That fucked up hairdo <laughs> was really great. He looked like someone. The guys in Ramones. I, yeah, I don't exactly. know if it's yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> So, um, but as time goes by and people see the diving bell and the butterfly, it has something else to it. It's not, uh, it just, the its form is unusual. And yeah. I think that if you look at other movies by other directors, you see it. If you look at Moonlight, you can see a huge influence of the diving bell on Barry Jenkins. He'd say it himself. Yeah. I don't necessarily want to um, pat myself on the back. I'm just saying that if we're going to all be involved in some kind of cinematic language and that we're going to try to, and we're going to contribute whatever, it's funny because there's a lot of directors that, for example, uh, Ron Howard saw me one day and he said, you know, we have a diving bell and the butterfly section in our movie about the race car driver after the guy has his accident. He was very proud to tell me that. You know, if I saw something that I was doing that somebody else did and it wasn't a conscious thing, I think, oh, shit, why did I do that? <laughs> I mean, when we made Before Nightfalls, the only uh, storyboarded moment, and I never have made a storyboard, but the only thing where you could kind of break the shots up into a bunch of shots was the balloon scene, which I was thinking about Andre Rublev. I didn't want to make it like a Steven Spielberg movie. I wanted to shoot it in in fragments of, of moments to where you believed you were floating. That was much more uh, filmic than sort of, I mean, I, I like the idea when you notice yourself seeing a movie, when it, you're conscious of 
maybe that's why I like a handheld camera where I feel somebody breathing while that's going on. Or I love how Louise edited At Eternity's Gate. I mean, what we did uh, and what we agreed upon doing about the length of the blackness or the... Um, so do you miss where he puts the... Do you miss when he puts his stuff down before he cuts the reeds, or you think it was fine after all this time? I think it's fine. <laughs> I figured you would. Yesterday I thought about that. Yeah. It would have. You realize now that if he would have done that, it would have taken too long. There was something yeah. about that, exactly. and it's it's funny. Sometimes it has to be done, and you're watching it, and it's what is it? Is it a year later? Yeah. But you realize. Okay, it was fine. And also we had big decisions about how many times we were going to see him on the uh, on the rickshaw when where he has his, uh, his hats on and he's yeah. floating just looking around. see the blue sky. We just had five, five different shots of that at one moment <clears throat> where you, you, okay, you want to sense yourself seeing yourself see. But five was too many. Yeah. And, but it was, each one was beautiful. But so, the whole scene when he's walking niche was 19 minutes long at one point. And, <laughs> and we, had, we were in love with every shot. <laughs> yeah, we, you can't imagine what we cut out. That was painful to cut yeah. some of that stuff out. It's because it there's so just beautiful. a couple of a couple of frames of them walking across that vegetable field. Yeah. And there's uh, we spent a lot of time on that. And also one of the problems was the music cues. We were so intent on using this music, which I think is great, but idiosyncratic, kind of like Thelonious Monk in some bizarre way. Uh, the way that it's played and it sounds so personal because it's one instrument, except when there's the violin and the piano. But yeah. having too many music cues made it seem longer. Yeah. You start getting this really peculiar idea about time and about but how... But also the music cues was a certain length because... She wasn't playing it, seeing the movie. She was just playing it um, and then by herself, by herself okay. and yeah. send us the music. Yeah. So that was also something you had to sort of make it the length of the music or edit the... I was doing the music editing also. Okay. I guess I did, right? Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> But when do you know when your film is finished and when do you know when a painting is finished? How? <coughs> well, that's two different things also. Yeah. Well, in, in this case, I mean, we had some really great scenes. Beautiful scene that we love with Patrick Cheney that we took out of the movie. And at first, I thought we're really getting to the end too quickly. But John was right about that also. Yeah. I mean, it was really the scene with Patrick Cheney and his son where there's a farmer and his son that start to that find Vincent in the field. And they ask him what he's doing there. And they say, and he says, why? And they say, well, this is our field. Could you paint somewhere else? <laughs> uh, and he says, well, if I go somewhere else, I'm going to have to start all over again. He said, why? It looks all the same around here. He said, no, it doesn't. And then Willem is explaining to them that the sun is makes these shadows, and without the sun, there's no shadow, so he's waiting for these clouds to pass. And they say, what do you do? So you just... Uh, doing nothing? He said, no, I'm waiting. And so it was a beautiful scene, but it just was too late in the movie. I loved it also because the camera was behind the uh, this this um, carriage. carriage with straw in it, and you saw these two guys driving towards him. 
And it was really cool. It reminded me of a Kurosawa movie or something like that. And it just had to go. And there was another moment with Alexandra Stewart, who was playing um, somebody's grandmother. And we fast forwarded 40, 40 years, was it? 40, yeah, 40 so years to the future for a little bit. Because the guy in the, the, the farmer says, so what happens to your paintings? And all of a sudden, you see this lady say, yeah, when I was a little girl, this guy came with these other people, and he was, he were, his clothes were falling apart. He was, it was terrible. But he, and, and, and these other people's paintings were really, but his painting was awful. My mother didn't know what to do with it. So, of course, she invited him in for a nice Sunday lunch with the other painters. And then when I was little, I used to go and collect the eggs. And so one Sunday, I was collecting the eggs, and you know what? Attached to the fence of the chicken coop was the Dutchman's painting. They used it to block up a hole in the fence. <laughs> and then we took that. We took that whole part out because we were opening another can of worms and that whole other story. So now it just goes from Dr. Gaget saying, I, and he says, uh, you don't need a doctor. He says, it's great to have a doctor as a friend. And then it goes to the last scene. And that it became like, more powerful. And it really connected beautifully to, yeah. I mean, that's rewriting and writing and editing for him to say, it's great to have a doctor as a friend. And then the next thing is he's got a, he's holding a stomach and he says, I have a pain in my stomach. You feel that scene with Dr. Gaget more. So I think that it's a process. It's really a process of feeling. And it's crazy how you can't necessarily see the outside of something. So this goes back to your question about something knowing when it's over. Well, when I'm painting, if the painting starts getting smaller while I'm working on it, I'm going in the wrong direction. Start filling it up with things that are, and it's, I guess it maybe it's the same thing when you start to over explain something in a movie or clog it up in a way, or there's things that you feel are extra. It takes a while to see that and then you start cutting them out. I mean, when we were doing the scene with Maz Mickelson, it was all amazing. Maz was great. Yeah. He's great. I mean, he came in, did that, and it was just first take. Oh, amazing. Yeah. And, but then there were certain things just in the writing that were too verbose in a way and too long. And once we took a couple of lines out, what he said next had so much more impact on the thing he said before that you realize that, hey, get – like I like to work on a dirty canvas. I mean, get something down and then you can do something to it. So we've got something that's there. You have to start. I guess that's the biggest thing. And that's where we're at right now. What are we going to do next? Yeah. I mean, you have to start so you can continue or you can react to that or whatever. So, But also taking out something, emphasize something else, which if you had other things, it just wouldn't be as powerful or as noticeable or... So it's the balance of what do you exactly what do you want to say in this moment? Mm. Juxtaposing things to other things is super important because it contextualizes everything. Whether you're making an exhibition or hanging paintings or you're editing movie. Okay. Should we finish off with Miral here? Sure. Let's see. Uh, uh, let's see what happens with me. Yeah, you want to do that? 
Miralis is a case, I mean, it's quite a political film, isn't it? Maybe you think, you, you would say that all your work is that, but Miralis so... More overtly political. Isn't it very, yeah. More overtly political. Um, boy, Javier Bardem was so great in Before Night Falls. When he gets, when he gets arrested and thrown in prison, there are all these guys, there must have been, I don't know how many people, 50 people in a cell, and they're all screaming. I mean, I put them in that cell. I mean, I couldn't go in that cell. I mean, when I, uh, I mean, I have claustrophobia also. So when he went into this really small cell, I got in there with him and, and it was terrifying. But, um, okay, let's see where we're at here. Oh, Dennis Hopper. Um, <clears throat> okay. There's one thing that uh, I just want to know if I could find. Oh, 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 I know where it is. Okay. This is an Israeli writer, Abishah Margalit. I don't know him. Miral Miriam. It's called. I'm just going to read you the first paragraph. In the war of 1948, our house in Jerusalem was directly hit and damaged. At the end of the war, we moved to a new neighborhood. Not far from our new home was an orphanage named St. Vincent de Paul. Interesting. Considering that's what... The, Asylum is in our movie. It was run by the Daughters of Charity. The daughters used to wear grim colored habits with wimples. The orphans were Arab girls. Their dress was a bit different. It consisted of a long blue and white striped dress and modest white collars. The girls always marched in groups, joylessly and noiselessly, in pairs and holding hands. I noticed their dress, but never their faces. One day, the procession of silent orphans crossed the street. One of the girls lingered behind. Her sandal was torn. The other girls noticed and started shouting her name. Mariam, Mariam. I was astonished. An orphan, an Arab orphan girl with the name of my mother. Mariam in Arabic is Miriam in Hebrew. It was Mariam that awakened me, a child of 10, from my little moral slumber. It made me see the marching girls in an entirely new light, no longer a faceless waddle of penguins, but now human girls. All of this happened in the language of Dylan Thomas, a grief ago. It is a grief that has lasted over 60 years of continuous bloody conflict between Israeli Jews and Palestinian Arabs. The movie Morale is an artistic effort for radical change in our moral perception of the Palestinians. So I never paid too much attention to that situation. My mother was the uh, uh, president of Hadassah, which is the women's Zionist organization in Brooklyn in 1948, before I was born. And I never really wanted to go to Israel, but I figured I owed it to my mother to kind of check it out and see what the problem was. And that's what came out when I did that. Mm -hmm. um, 
That being said, um, when my kids went to school, they were attacked as their father was an anti-Semite. And, and um, I remember Olmo saying to me that he said to one of these kids, um, did you see the movie? No. Uh, did your parents see the movie? No, but they heard that. They said, well, why don't you see the movie and we'll talk about it later. But it's interesting that normally, I mean, in the United States, supposedly, or probably in Sweden, if you have some kind of political conscience, usually it's open for debate and it's healthy. But if you uh, said that the Palestinians have a narrative, you're an anti-Semite. I mean, and it's funny because they're all Semites, the Jews and the Arabs over there. So I knew that there wasn't going to be a big hit. But I wanted to tell that story. I thought that it needed to be addressed. And it was a story about how a woman, Hind Husseini, uh, made a, an island where these kids could be sheltered for a while, like they were educated and uh, in the middle of the war zone. So I'm not really a political person, but you've got to be blind not to see what's happening. And sometimes... It's not enough just to cross the street. And if a lady tripped with her groceries and she's lying on the floor, you can't just walk across the street. You gotta help her up and pick up the groceries. And, and it's not enough to do nothing. So I guess that was how I felt at the time. Yeah. <clears throat> when you grew up in Brooklyn, uh, that was a Jewish community, wasn't yeah. it? But have you experienced a lot of anti-Semitism? Uh, not at all. Not at all. No, because most of the people were Jews that were living there or Italians in that particular neighborhood. And then when I was 15, I moved to Texas. So the fact that I had never been uh, feeling paranoid about that, I just didn't have that as a part of my makeup. And when I moved to Texas, nobody, I think there were 36,000. Um, I don't know how many people lived in Brownsville, but not many. And there weren't that many Jews. So the Jewish people that lived there were a bit paranoid. They all stuck together. I didn't feel any need to hang around with them. So I didn't. And I met a bunch of kids there that were surfers. And those became my friends. I started surfing at that time. And uh, those are the people I still know. Uh, but then my experience of living on the Mexican border is when I started to speak Spanish and get involved in Latin American um, culture and Something like that. Yeah. <clears throat> Finally, then, uh, how many years will it be before we see another Julia Schnabel film, do you think? Do you have anything in the pipeline, so to speak? I don't know. You she, look tired when I, I say that. I, so. I, I think Louise is more anxious <clears throat> to get back to work and to do it. Yeah. Um, she could. She could just direct her own movie, and I can, you know be her assistant or something like that, watch her do it. I mean, because John Killick, the producer, definitely wants her to do it. I think um, we have to think about really what it is, because if you notice, I mean, Basquiat was made in 1995, came out in 96. Before Nightfalls was done in 1999, came out in 2000. The Diving Bell was made in, <clears throat> came out in 2007. So that's seven years seven. after that. Berlin was made in 2010, I think. Um, 
Well, so, and we were all, they were made around the same time. So what year is it now? 2019. 2019. So I hadn't made a film for how long? When did you make Milan? Eight or nine years. Probably nine years, you know, eight years, <coughs> nine years. Yeah. So obviously I don't feel compelled to make movies all the time, but uh, maybe I just need to become really pregnant with the idea or something has to happen that, why do you think I made um Van Gogh, why, what do you think happened? I mean, you were, why do you think I decided to say, okay, we'll do it? Um, I felt that it was something that whatever you looked, there was something about Van Gogh at one moment. I mean, it was sort of just coming towards you. And I think that you felt that you could, I mean, I think you realized at one point that you can really tell the story from an artist's perspective and do something that never had been done before. And I think also as that thought evolved that you were, you, you know, you have to, to, to do that to Van Gogh also to tell this story, I think. I mean, as we talk about it, first, this man named um, Robert Kulzer, who runs uh, Constantine Films in Los Angeles, mm -hmm. I had written a script for Perfume that was buried by Baron Eichinger that they still own. And he said, we'll give it back to you if you do this movie about Van Gogh. And I didn't even want to talk to him at first, yeah. but when I met him, he, he came up to me at Borschatz one day in Berlin, and he was very, very nice. I said, listen, I don't think I want to do that. He said, well, let me just send you something would you take a look at this? He told me about the book and he sent me a script and I read it. And I said, this is the same shit that everybody has done. It starts with a dream and the bomb going and the, there's an explosion in the mind. Just forget it. And then so I sent it back to him. So for somebody else, I said, just somebody should do that, but not me. And then he had some other version. I looked at that and I became friends with this guy, but I didn't want to make that movie. Then I was working on something else, writing something that got very complicated with Johnny Depp. Uh, that he gave, we were very good friends and we just shook hands. He gave me something and I was writing this thing called In the Hand of Dante, based on a Nick Tosh book, great book, which we we're kind of thinking about just trying to finish the script. It was about 80% there. Very complicated, but very, very far out. Then... Laurie Anderson calls me one day and says, you know, I know this guy. They found this book of Van Gogh drawings and I've got, you could see the drawings. They were. But that was after. That was when you already was writing the script. Um, but, okay. Yeah, I guess so. But what, it, but what was happening is when I'm, yeah, you're right. But what was happening is things started to blow my way somehow. Yeah. All of a sudden these. But it was that show at the Museum d'Orsay with um, Van Gogh and Artaud. Which you went and saw with Jean-Claude. Okay, yes, that's what happened. Uh, I made a painting in 1978 called The Patients and the Doctors. And the reason I called it that was because Antonin Artaud, who was one of my favorites, who wrote the theater and its double, wrote an essay called Man Suicided by Society, which was about Van Gogh. I wrote... So I had written that, I had read that, and then I had named this painting in 1978, The Patients and the Doctors. The name of the show 
at the Musée d'Orsay was the artist suicided by society, something like that. Arto drawings with Van Gogh paintings. Pierre Loeb was an art dealer. After Van Gogh died, in probably 19, between 1912 and 1920, I'd say, or 1914, Anton and Arto wrote the catalog text for this exhibition of Van Gogh paintings at the Pierre Loeb Gallery. They, then they, in the Musée d'Orsay, they showed Anton and Arto's drawings with Van Gogh's paintings and Anton and Arto's text. Well, I'm there with Jean-Claude looking at this stuff. It's so familiar to me. It had so many different things that were kind of, that I felt like they decided to make a show at the museum based on my painting without even seeing my painting. I mean, we just, there was an agreement all of a sudden about this thing. So I'm looking at the painting at a self-portrait and I'm describing how the painting is made to Jean-Claude. I just talk about what I'm seeing. I didn't think anything about it. Later, the past, a few months after, right before the movie came out, he started to say, you know, that was the day that I decided to make this movie with you because when you talked about Van Gogh, I felt like he was speaking to us. He didn't tell me that when I was talking. He told me that, what, eight months later or something like that. Or what you realized when you were looking at the exhibition was that if you started to write a script as you look at an exhibition, you look at one painting, one painting, one painting, and that become the experience and that was how you want to approach right so forget the biography let's look at different events maybe that didn't happen maybe it did but it could have so how do you make a movie about van gogh that nobody will know what's going on it well you invent each scene based on what could have happened so um yeah the war in vietnam was going on at that time uh, yes, he could have had a conversation with the priest. Uh, he, could, he read Shakespeare. He read Shakespeare because uh, he spoke English perfectly. He went to museums. He saw, we know that he saw uh, Jacob Wrestling the Angel by Delacroix. And so we start thinking about all of these things that, uh, and then obviously we bought the uh, the letters and Jean-Claude read them and, and we read them, and but... Um, it's truly a mix of so many different perspectives. I mean, really, um, Louise's uh, upbringing in a rural Swedish landscape where, I mean, I thought some, she was crazy because she walked everywhere in England, in London. Whenever I was talking, she, it'll take me half an hour to walk there. I thought, doesn't this person ever know what a taxi cab is? <laughs> but I realized that it's more interesting to walk places than it is to ride which I never did, and I started to do because that's what she did. And, uh, but also the idea, and, and I would just want to stop all the time, but she would go further. So going further is the way you had to go in order to really see where Van Gogh was going, because he went further. And between the physicality of what she was doing and also... Just notice this. It's amazing when somebody notices something that you don't see until they point it out. And they become, they've been looking at trees since they were little. The way light's hitting a tree. Uh, I learned a lot from her uh, looking at all of this stuff. And at the same time, I'm coming from a different place. And Jean-Claude, he was the assistant 
He was the assistant to the secretary to the general in Algeria. And he's the guy that's saying, yeah, they're all rapists. Um, all officers are insane. So he's bringing his personal experience to it. She's bringing her personal experiences. And I am bringing my personal experiences to this. And somehow we arrive at something that is one thing that she and I agreed on is that it was going to be very physical. And the experience of watching the movie wasn't going to be, uh, and that's where I think Jean-Claude kind of contributed a plethora of amazing things to make the movie what it is. But at a certain moment, for example, Louis Bunuel didn't like music in movies. So I was always hearing this music in my head when Van Gogh was walking around. Jean-Claude definitely did not. And so to even want to play the music, which I tried to at first, to play the music for him, put him off. So fuck it, you know, don't, if you know that somebody's not going to be uncomfortable with that, don't serve them chicken if they don't like chicken. I don't like chicken. But it was, um, but understanding, I guess I had a pretty clear idea of what I knew and what I didn't know. But you're, when you're making something, you have to be willing to not know and keep going. And... It's weird to talk about it now. It sounds so self-satisfied, like, oh, yeah, we did really good, and it's really great, and now we can pat ourselves on the back, which is kind of sounds pretty narcissistic. But I think that when you see something that you uh, feel satisfied with, you, it's okay to say that you like it. You can still have questions about it. Could it be better or whatever? I mean, you can have false modesty or about something, or you could be honest and say, you know what? I'm proud of what I did. I feel better about myself because I think that that thing is not compromised. And so it's always difficult. Making the thing is one thing, and the relationship that the artist has to the thing is something totally different. Okay. This I have been... one more quote for you. Okay. Can I have that red book right there? Because her sister's working on um, the, what's it called? Website. A website for me. And uh, she was digging up stuff. Shit that I wrote. And, uh, and things that she thought might, should be on the website. And um, this, this, this is a CBJ book that was written in uh, 1987, but this particular part was, um, it's, it's here, let me just see where it is, it's, uh, but it'll tell you, okay. Okay. 1978. Madrid Notebook. I want my life to be embedded in my work, crushed into my painting like a pressed car. If it's not, my work is just some stuff. When I'm away from it, I'm crippled. 
Without my relationship to what may seem like these inanimate objects, I'm just an indulgent misfit. If the spirit of being isn't present in the face of this work, it should be destroyed because it's meaningless. I'm not making some things. I'm making a synonym for the truth with all its falsehoods. As, as oblique as it is, I'm making icons that present life in terms of our death, a bouquet of mistakes. So I was uh, 26 years old when I wrote that, but I guess we're doing the same thing still. Anyway, we try. Yeah, thank, thank you for your time. It's been great having you here in my pod. Well, thank you. Yeah, thank you. And now we're going to have a, a Julian Schnabel film festival with the family so the kids can see the films. I hope you're interested now to, <laughs> to see if That's it's... That's why I brought you to get you interested. <laughs> <laughs> and I need some help. in three years like a chatbot maybe your new best friend but what won't change needing health insurance united healthcare tri-term medical plans underwritten by golden rule insurance company offer flexible budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states learn more at uh1.com even when we're on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 50 dollars luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.